This is a 980 CKNW podcast. You are live with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio. I've got Graham Williams with me today. We've got an awesome show. We're talking tech and uh, we've got some great segments. Uh, in later in the program, we'll be covering some of the, uh, the cool Apple gear that was announced. New iPads, Mac Minis and MacBook Airs. We'll also be uh, talking uh, with some cool dudes from a new TV show on the Discovery Channel called the Vintage Tech Hunters. Ooh, I like that. Right? It's actually kind of cool. It's uh, basically a show about these two dudes going across North America, yard sales, barn sales, finding old technology, everything from like old Ataris to way back old pinball machines and, and things like that. Love it. A, a friend of mine actually has a basement that is stacked full of old Mac tech. No. Yeah. Oh, you I know him to... too. Who? Tristan. Yeah. Tristan Jutra. Tristan. Shout out to Tristan and... <laughs> And his Mac Tech. Uh, let's talk about some of the uh, the news uh, in the tech world, uh, Graham. Uh, something I found interesting: the Canadian government is banning settlement demands in copyright notice and notice systems. So this is something interesting. If uh, uh, one of these movie studios uh, has determined that uh, your IP address, and that's how they track you through these BitTorrent sites, uh, is downloading uh, their content, whether they're movies or TV shows, uh, they can send a letter to your ISP who then forwards that letter on to you. Mm-hmm. And these letters in many cases have said you've downloaded this illegally, uh, but you know, click here and we'll settle. Yes. And the government now, thank God, is saying no more. That's good. I mean, because in a lot of cases, you know, uh, it sounded like consumers weren't really being informed of their rights. Um, you know, we've seen uh, ISPs. So in this case, Rogers, Telus, Shaw, Bell have actually been fighting back against uh, a lot of the movie industry saying, no, we don't want to connect you with these people directly. They've actually gone to court to stop that from happening and also to prevent being on the hook for the cost of having to send these notices. So these notices in general, they're not a great deterrent. Um, they've put a lot of people in some very dire fight financial straits for things that perhaps they weren't educated about. We should stress to people, please don't pirate things. There are some great opportunities to not do that. You know, you can purchase things outright. You can borrow them on DVD or Blu-ray from a friend. You can use a streaming service. Uh, but these notices are, it's good to see them going the way of the wind. Well, that's a good segue into our next uh, new story here on Get Connected. Uh, Canada actually has higher piracy rates, you know, people downloading, you know, Movie show, movies and TV shows illegally than the U.S. And I think a big reason is because it's much easier in the U.S. to get a lot of that content through streaming services. Mm-hmm. HBO shows, for example. Yes. Uh, Game of Thrones. There hasn't been any streaming service in Canada where you could get that. You'd have to have a cable subscription package from one of the, the cable TV providers. Yeah. But now Bell, with their Crave service has a new tier that gives you first-run HBO shows. Yeah, so you could get Crave TV before, but you were a few seasons behind on everything. Yes. So you could kind of catch up, but if people were talking about Game of Thrones and who died this week, you were two years behind. Exactly. Uh, which was not fantastic. No, and, you were a loser. Yeah, and a lot of people did. They just straight up resorted to, well, you know what, fine, you don't want to give it to me, and I don't want a cable subscription because Canadian cord cutters are... That's a big thing out there right now. So they would just go and pirate it. And so, you know, this really comes down to really illustrating that this is a customer service issue. If, yes. you, if you make things available at a price that is appropriate, people will pay it. And the price on this is actually, it's pretty good. Yeah. So Crave TV, uh, which now has been rebranded to Crave, yep. uh, 10 bucks a month. Mm-hmm. And you got a whole bunch of TV shows, uh, I think some movies, and a lot of Showtime shows. Yes. And maybe some older HBO yeah, stuff. Yeah, they're calling as it well. Select HBO. Yes. Uh, now Crave has the next tier up, 
I forget what they call it, but so for 20 bucks a month, uh, you get first run HBO. Yeah. And that's, I think, what everybody was looking for, being able to tune in and either stream that day of or the day after. I know for myself personally, like uh, one of the few shows that I buy, because I usually will stream everything, is Doctor Who. Because yes. I kind of want to be up on it. And I get it the day after it airs. I can wait the one day, right? Same thing with, uh, with Star Trek Discovery. We get that, I think, a day after it airs in the States um, through CBS. Yes. So, you know what? Honestly, I'm totally willing to do that. I think that's a good price. And for $20 a month... When I think of it this way, you know, Crave plus Netflix plus um, what else? Uh, like my iTunes thing. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm kind of looking at sort of about 30 bucks a month. So 300 to $400 a year. Yes. Whereas I used to pay $150 a month for my cable subscription. A little bit more. A little bit more. <laughs> yeah. You know, so kind of looking at that, this really kind of balances out for me. I get the stuff that I want when I want to watch it. And I don't have to pay for all of that extra stuff that I'm never going to actually use. This works out well. Well done, Bell. I never thought I'd say that. That's Crave. Uh, this was a really interesting story. We talk a lot about the cloud, all these cloud services. Basically, the cloud are servers mm-hmm. in big warehouses that are serving up your software, like yes. Office 365 or Dropbox or anything like that. Pretty well, any software now is cloud-based. Well, now they're taking the cloud underwater. Correct. Did you see this? I did, yeah. So Microsoft actually has uh, a pod underwater off the coast of Scotland, and now um, they're putting one off the coast of California. Yeah, and this makes a lot of sense because a lot of the data that's routed around the world is actually routed through undersea cables. Yes. And so, I mean, you know, over the air is not is not great. Satellite has latency. You need a cable, and the only place that you can do that to get things across and around the world are through these cables. Interestingly enough, we've been sending data through cables for a very, very long time. Um, you know, back in World War One, a lot of the German communications to the United States were intercepted by the British in undersea cables. They weren't even encrypted. They didn't know they could do that. So we've, we've had these undersea cables for a very, very long time. But being able to put the data right next to those cables really reduces latency, speeds up things. It's a great solution. When we come back from the break here and get connected, we're going to be talking with the folks over at a new TV show on Discovery Channel called Vintage Tech Hunters. You're going to stay tuned for this because it's pretty cool. You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. We still have lots to talk about on today's program. Uh, later on, uh, we'll be going through some of the uh, the Apple goodness that was uh, announced uh, this week, uh, all the new uh, toys and uh, gear that you might want for Christmas. Uh, and we'll also be talking about payment technology. Did you know uh, in April 2019, you won't have to sign... Uh, your MasterCard uh, receipts uh, anymore. It's gone. Well, we'll tell you what's uh, taking its place. Right now, I want to go back. Uh, I know this is a tech show, and we're always trying to go forward, but uh, I want to talk about a new show, a Canadian series here on the Discovery Channel. It's uh, premiering Monday, November 5th. It's called Vintage Tech Hunters. And uh, if uh, you were fond of uh, vintage tech, and that's not that far back, actually, uh, you'll want to tune into this show. On the line, we've got two of the hosts uh, behind this uh, incredible new series. We've got uh, Bahush Blahut and Sean Hatton. Thanks for joining me, guys. Thanks well, thank you very much. So this new show, I think you've got uh, 14 uh, retro technology-packed episodes, uh, again, airing Mondays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific time. Uh, give us the Reader's Digest uh, of what this show is all about and what you crazy guys are doing. Uh, so, Mike, we, uh, we travel all across the U.S. and Canada, 
looking for cool vintage tech. Uh, we got to see things people normally don't get to see, got uh, collectors to open up their collections to us. And um, not only do we learn a bit about some of the uh, vintage technology that leads to all the great tech we have today, but we did a little wheeling and dealing. We got to do a little buying and selling, and uh, that's kind of what our business is. So, okay, so uh, tech isn't that old. You know, when you we talk about, you know, like Antique Roadshow and, you know, these types of shows, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with, um, you know, stuff, collectibles that could be like hundreds of years old. Uh, here we're only talking maybe a couple decades, really. What are, what are some of the, uh, the tech items that you guys came across out on the road? So it's interesting that you say that, Mike, because that's something that I would have thought as well. But what I learned uh, while traveling uh, North America with Bohush is that a lot of people do tend to think of vintage tech as stuff from the 80s because uh, a lot of people, let's face it, were very nostalgic for that decade right now. Um, but we found a lot of stuff that goes far, far past that in terms of old, really vintage stuff. We're talking about the very earliest pinball machines that didn't have flippers. This is from Prohibition era when pinball was considered a form of gambling. Um, these are machines where you'd put your penny in, pull the plunger, watch the ball go, and you'd have no agency over where this ball went. It would just end up in a socket of some kind, very much like uh, Plinko on uh, The Price is Right. And then you would win uh, whatever it is the barkeep was willing to part with. So, yeah, a lot of folks think of retro tech as being things from the 80s, like your very first Nintendo and Sega and all that. But uh, surprisingly, it goes back very far. And there was a collector out uh, just outside of Chicago named Jasper Sanfilippo, and he opened his estate to us, and he just had an amazing assortment of vintage coin-op machines that were beautiful wood, carved, lacquered, lots of mechanics inside that made a lot of noise. It was really cool. Is this stuff valuable? You know, we got to it, see a lot of early uses of electricity, it, you I know, could, which is kind of interesting because people think of technology as something that has, like, computer tech inside, uh, kind of high tech. But, you know, clock spring motors are pretty cool, and somebody clever had to think of that. Um, we even got to see surprisingly compact technology. Like um, we actually saw a record player that uh, actually folded down into like kind of a six-inch circle, like a giant uh, Bose of the Clown-sized pocket watch. You could unfold it and play records, and it was all spring-wound, and it had no electricity in it, yet it played records. It, it was really breathtaking to see. Like the Sony Walkman of its time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. If you if you were having a, a, a picnic after having a game of squash, uh, you could go off, trot down to the parlor, and uh, spin some hot and heavy seventy eights. <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about some of the eighties tech. Uh, I saw in uh, your release here, uh, you came across uh, a Magnavox Odyssey. Uh, I, I remember that because uh, back in the day when I was little uh, and, you know, video games were starting to come out, uh, my dad got me one of those, but I really wanted the Atari. And so he went back and returned <laughs> it and got the Atari 2600. Well, Mike, you're talking, you're talking the Odyssey 2. Oh, that's, that's right. That's sequel. right. That's, that's right. That, With the keyboard that, and that everything. displayed in color. Yes. Our Odyssey barely displays in black and white. Uh, it, was, uh, it was from the early 70s. And in order to color, you would actually have to put these clear acetate sheets on the television. <laughs> that, that was the color, right? The graphics yeah. would glow from behind it. What's and, funny uh, is that 
Yeah, the system had variations of what we know as Pong, but it would be like ice hockey or tennis or a game that's just mysteriously called geography. And you'd have the two paddle controllers with the dial, but you as players would have to keep score. So it was kind of like this amalgam of board game to video game. You know, people were still figuring out what video games could be. Like this whole idea of controlling something on a screen was so new and novel. And so people just didn't know how to, how to work with that kind of technology yet, but they were interested in doing it. Is this the stuff you came across? Is there any value in it? Are, are they are, are there any valuable pieces of tech that uh, you, you you found? Oh sure, we we found a number of things of immense value. Um, like one of the things we learned while doing the show is um, there's a big collector crowd out there. Some of them are kind of secret. Some of them are out there. Uh, but one thing that remains collectible and remains valuable is technology first. You know, anytime there's the first of some new idea, um, like the Odyssey video game we were just talking about, that was the first ever home video game. So there are, are people who still care about that. Or um, another great first is we found the first cell phone, you know, the big gray brick Zach Morris cell phone. And while, you know, a phone from a year ago isn't worth very much money, uh, this brick phone can be worth hundreds, maybe even a thousand bucks just because it was the very first. And every collector wants that in their collection. Did you come across any uh, uh, first-generation Apple One computers? Oh, yeah, we actually did. We visited a gentleman, uh, I believe his name's Corey, and he had an extensive, absolutely extensive, and just beautifully curated collection of vintage computers. We're talking computers that were, you know, filing cabinet size, even bigger than that, but as you walked through his collection, he kind of went from the earliest computers to what ended up being desktop computers and Apple in its day. Uh, and, and still to this day, we're very much pioneers in this field. And, and we got to see an Apple one and just see how crude it was uh, by today's standards. But back when this was released, this was like top of the line stuff. And uh, as we were Learning from Corey, of course, you'll have to watch the show to uh, to see um, the episode and see the item in its context. But we learned that this thing is worth quite a lot of money. So I'm going to ask you guys a here. A lot, a lot of money. A, a lot of money? Are we talking like thousands of dollars? Tens of no, thousands? No, no, it's more than that. <laughs> more than that. We're talking like a uh, really, really nice retirement plan. We're talking <laughs> golden, golden, uh, a gold-plated gold parachute. So, it's very, very nice. So, any listeners out there have like an Apple, these, um, Apple One computer in their uh, in their attic? Uh, they're rich. Well, yeah, yeah, the yeah thing, I mean, oh, you want to go ahead? No, no, go ahead, Sean. Well, what I was going to say is the thing with the Apple One computer is that it was, uh, you know, very much the early days of computing, where a lot of uh, people who were getting into computers were not just folks who knew how to use them, but folks who knew how to kind of build them and modify them. And the Apple One was uh, essentially this giant circuit board where in order to add on any sort of memory expansion or any other special features, you actually had to kind of desecrate the circuit board and, and like literally add stuff to it or, or chop stuff out to uh, accommodate other things. So finding an Apple One in its pristine, um, unaltered circuit board form is is super rare and uh, and not a lot are known to exist uh, out in the wild. 
That said, someone may have this. Uh, you know, it could have been someone's first computer, and then they didn't bother updating it. So, you know, people do never know what they have. Um, sometimes they can kind of have an idea of uh, the kinds of value that they might have stored up in the attic, but that's part of the fun of uh, of our road trip is, like, we basically looked in basements, we looked in attics, we looked in barns, and, and we found some pretty neat stuff that folks uh, kind of either forgot about or they just had so much of that uh, they were, you know... <laughs> persuaded eventually to uh, to part with and let us uh, purchase some of it. Corey's an interesting case because he's a collector who turned his passion for collecting computers into an actual museum. Like, you can actually tour his collection. And we met a couple people like that who um, either they've got a museum or that's their aspiration for their stuff because these collectors are really passionate about remembering that history and sharing that story with generations to come. Just to show how vintage tech kind of is part of our history, and it shows where the human race kind of is. You know, how far have we advanced in the last hundred years or so? We're talking with Bohush Blahut and Sean Hatton. They are uh, two of the hosts uh, behind Vintage Tech Hunters. You can catch the first episode Monday, November 5th, on the Discovery Channel. It uh, airs at 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific time. Guys, thanks for coming on the show, and I look forward to uh, watching this series. Mike, thanks a million. This is great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. When we come back from the break, still a lot more tech to talk here on Get Connected. Uh, we will uh, be chatting about all the new Apple gear that was announced uh, this week. And will you want it? Well, stay tuned to find out. You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs here in the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected, Mike Eggerbo here in studio. Well, if uh, you heard, Apple's got some new gear they've announced uh, this week coming out for the holiday season. On the line, we've got uh, our friend Tom Lee from IT World Canada to walk through some of the uh, the gear that they announced uh, this this week. Thanks for jo- uh, joining us, Tom. Oh, thank you for having me. Uh, so interesting. I mean, they just had the iPhone announcement uh, last month. Uh, now they've got uh, a new iPad and uh, Mac announcement. What, what was the highlight for you? Oof, all three, I'd say. Okay. They released a MacBook Air and MacBook, the Mac Mini and the iPad Pro. Um, at the announcement, I think they're just looking to refine the product stack a little bit more. Uh, the MacBook Air in particular, I think, is going to be a highlight for Apple. Uh, oof, it's the biggest update, I think, in three years. Last year, they made a small incremental update to a new processor, but this year, they, they, they've changed everything on the Mac Air. So you get new USB-C ports, you get um, eighth-generation processor, and most importantly, you get a retina display. And that's edge-to-edge glass, and that's, very, that's a very um, highly requested feature by its fans. So I, it, I think that's the biggest one. Yeah, so it's a, it's a 13-inch screen from what I understand. So uh, although it's the same size screen as the previous uh, model, from my understanding, it, it's a smaller unit because there's no bezel anymore, right? Absolutely. And the narrowing of the bezels made it about 17% smaller in volume. Uh, that's going to make it more portable, too. So it's, it's quite nice. It's a good upgrade. Uh, I know a lot of people have been wanting, you know, a significant upgrade to the MacBook Air. That's been a very popular line uh, for Apple. Uh, and, you know, uh, I actually went with a, a Mac MacBook because they didn't have the, you know, the good MacBook Airs as far as the, the processors. Um, are we are we looking at a significant price increase for the new the new model? I say yes. Um, Fourteen ninety nine to start with 
for an i5 processor, dual-core i5 processor, 8 gigabytes of RAM and 128 gigabytes of storage. So going by the hardware alone, I'd say this is a little bit expensive, especially when you get a competition like the Huawei MateBook X Pro and the Surface Laptop, which start at a lower price point for around the same configuration. But they'll sell truckloads of the MacBook Air anyway, won't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This also touches the border of the 13-inch MacBook Pro, um, the last year's generation. I think Apple's just, yeah. So it's 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 kind of uh, it steps all over, if you know what I mean. Yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about the iPads. Uh, this is uh, the most significant update to iPads that I've seen in a long time as far as the overall uh, desi- uh, design and, uh, and feature set. Um, Talk us through uh, what uh, what's new about them. You're absolutely right on the design change. So, first of all, the smaller iPad, uh, the 10.5-inch model, got upgraded to a 11-inch model, but its dimensions remain the same. So Apple did this by, stri- by once again narrowing the bezels, and the display has been improved to 120 hertz. Gone, it's a lightning cable. Thank goodness. They went with a standardized USB-C connector. That means you can uh, plug in more devices, um, stuff like that, and they remove the fingerprint reader and the home button, and uh, they integrate a Face ID. And the most important feature here is probably the new A12X Bionic chip. Um, It's probably the most powerful mobile chip Apple has. It's based on the the same chip using the iPhone, except, you know, it's got more transistors, 10 billion of them, to be exact. So Apple's saying, oh, you know, this rivals, I think, 90 per, 90% of all uh, PC laptops out there. And the graphics, they're actually comparing it to the Xbox, which is a pretty, pretty heavy statement, I'd say. <laughs> but, I mean, they're really trying to cover all the bases with this. Uh, you know, your, your one uh, statement there, it's as powerful as 90% of the laptops uh, out in the market uh, right now. Uh, and you're also saying that they're going after, uh, you know, obviously the gaming community as well, if they're saying it's as powerful as uh, uh, an Xbox. Um, you, you think yeah. people are going to ditch their laptops uh, for the iPad Pros? That's hard to say. You, you make a good point on um, on going with, the, going with the gaming community, but also the professional community as well. So on stage at the press release, a press event, they demonstrated running uh, Adobe Photoshop, and it looks like it runs it very, very fluidly. Uh, that's obviously thanks to the more powerful hardware. As to whether or not people's going to ditch their laptop for it, um, hmm, I don't think it's catered to our power users. But let's say if you're a business owner who just does, um, you know, simple word edits, sending emails and stuff like that, I can see this being a very good alternative to them as opposed to a PC laptop. It's lighter. I mean, it's got great battery life. It's got... The basic features covered it extremely well. Yeah, I you know to be honest now when I when I travel I just take my iPad Pro with me. I don't take my laptop anymore. It uh, does pretty yeah. well like ninety eight percent of the things I needed to do, and it's just so much lighter and more convenient. Right, and I think that's a the crowd they're targeting with this product. Uh, they also redesigned the Apple Pencil from uh, what I've seen. Uh, one feature that I'm loving is that they've uh, made part of it flat so it doesn't roll off the table anymore, which actually happens more often than not for me. Yeah, and that actually plays into another design change. I don't know if you noticed. So the flat part actually attaches to the iPad magnetically, and when it's attached, it automatically pairs, and it charges wirelessly so you never run out of battery. 
In fact, the battery life on the iPad is so great, Apple's pretty confident that it can also charge your phone and other USB-C devices, which I found it to be really cool. Yeah, it's interesting. Let's just quickly talk about the USB-C connector. Uh, Steve Jobs must be rolling over in his grave right now uh, because he, <laughs> I mean, he he really pushed that whole, uh, you know, lightning cable uh, connector, uh, you know, for yeah. all the, uh, the the Mac devices. And you know what? It, it's brought them in billions of dollars as well because, uh, you know, uh, you know, all these accessory manufacturers basically had to be certified by them uh, uh, as, as well. So do you think we're going to see them moving away then from the lightning connector even uh, coming into the the new phones in the coming years. Um, mm, that's hard to say. It's a good move that they're pushing towards USB C or accepting it. Um, it's just like from a user user perspective, this makes makes more sense. You don't have to carry on a dongle anymore, and it's compatible with more devices. As for their phones, I can't say. <laughs> that's up to them, honestly. Uh, let's just quickly talk about the other uh, big announcement that I think a lot of people were uh, wishing for, like for years now. The Mac Mini, um, this crazy little device, has now been upgraded with uh, better specs inside. Oh my God! And yes, it is a huge upgrade. It's a first upgrading four years. So Apple just left it in the cold for four years. So um, you get uh, the processor has been updated from a fourth generation to a. Um, eighth generation, and the core count has been uh, improved to four and six cores. So that's a lot more power there, and it also runs more efficiently. Uh, maximum RAM capacity has been upgraded to 64 gigabytes, and maximum storage capacity has been upgraded to ter- two terabyte SSD. And this is only SSD now. It doesn't have a spinning platter drive anymore. So they also embedded the T2 security chip, it's the same one used in the uh, iPad Pro and the MacBook Air. Um, design change, there's not a whole lot, but there is a lot more ports. You get four times Thunder, sorry, you get four Thunderbolt 3 ports and two USB-A ports. That's a full-size USB ports. All in that compact little size. We're talking with Tom Lee from IT World Canada. Thanks for joining us today, Tom. appreciate uh, all the info. No problem. Thank you for having me. When we come back from the break, more tech to talk here on Get Connected. You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs here in the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You are back with Get Connected. Mike Agarbo here in studio. We're broadcasting across the Chorus Radio Network here in Canada. I want to talk about payments now. Remember the old days when it was just kind of cash and, you know, occasionally using, uh, you know, checks or a credit card? Well, I remember, uh, you know, back in uh, my day, my retail days, uh, selling shoes, uh, you know, when we took credit cards, uh, we'd have to run it through the machine if the the uh, if the transaction was over $100, we had to phone it in, and that sucked because it took forever to get through on the line. And, of course, technology has improved and improved. We got the machines in to do the automatic uh, approvals. Uh, and now we're getting into the whole e-commerce uh, space uh, you know, over the past decade as well, uh, you know, basically doing billions of dollars in transactions. To help us understand the future of transactions uh, online and in the real world, uh, we've uh, got a great guest uh, on the line. Her name is Jess Turner. She's the uh, EVP over at MasterCard for Digital Payments uh, and Labs. Thanks for joining us, Jess. Thanks for having me. I I found this interesting uh, in uh, a press release you guys had sent out. Uh, Next year, in uh, 2019, uh, I believe uh, in the April time frame, uh, cardholders won't have to sign uh, when they're making transactions anymore. Is that true? That is true. 
true. That is true. We're, we're able to do that because with technology and evolution, much like you just talked about how far we've come so already, um, we have something called EMV, uh, which allows us to make sure that the card transaction is secure without, without an actual signature, so making it easier for the consumer and a little faster and easier for the merchant as well. Uh, it's uh, it's a it's a big shift. I, I think you know all of us have been very used to like signing uh, over the years for credit card transactions. I know it's uh, becoming less and less now because you know we're putting our our pins in. Is that uh, basically uh, in brick and mortar stores how you're going to maintain that uh, that security and the identity of uh, the cardholder? Yes, actually, the chip um, when you dip your card into the point of sale does in fact make it far more secure, and the pin definitely replaces the signature, again, in a more secure way. Um, but what we're also seeing is in the brick-and-mortar stores, it's um, you know, becoming different because the world is becoming digital and physical all at once. So you know, today you may go to your merchant and go to their counter and see a terminal, um, or you may go to your merchant and actually be able to buy your item on your mobile device, and that would be a digital transaction. That's also very, very secure, and I can ex- explain a little more about that if you'd like, and both in the physical world, but different ways to interact with the merchant to buy your item. And so consumers can do things the way they want. They can buy things the way they want, which is easier for them. Obviously, we're going more and more online now. You talked about mobile. You know, we're going through uh, our computers, uh, through websites, you know, the Amazons uh, of, of the world. How are you guys making that easier for consumers and, and more secure? Because I, I know a lot of our listeners, you know, still worry about doing online transactions and, you know, having their identity stolen uh, uh, or their, their credit card number taken by someone. Yeah, absolutely. So it's, it's what I spend every day thinking about and creating new products for. Um, what we're doing right now is we're doing something, it's called tokenization. That's kind of the formal technical term. But what we're doing is we're making it so that merchants don't have to hold the card number that's on the plastic card in their environment or online, if you will, to make that payment for the consumer. And so what we're doing is we're creating a new number with something called dynamic data, which is you know data that changes constantly. And we're sending that to the merchant. So when a merchant, like you referenced Amazon, um, has a way for you to pay on their file, we'd like to call that card on file, um, that they actually don't have the same card number that you have on your plastic card. And not only do they not have the same number, but the number they have has this data that constantly changes. So when that happens, if anything a fraudster comes and tries to steal that number, they can't do anything with the number anyway because the data is constantly changing. And what that does is it protects the consumer from fraud on the online world. Sounds a little complicated, but it's not really. You're just basically making it difficult for those uh, those. Uh, those numbers to be be stolen. People still will do the transactions uh, the normal way. Um, you know, I use a lot of different e-commerce sites, and I have to constantly enter in all my information. Are you guys finding ways to make that easier? We are. We're focused on that. Um, so there's a few ways. One is we continue to work with merchants so that they have a way for your customer to pay, um, for the consumer to pay, you know, with a card on file so they don't have to enter anything, and that will continue to move through. But the other is, much like when you're in the physical world, when you go to into a retail store, you talked about when you used to sell shoes, you go in and 
you, regardless of which card you want to pay with, you pay with the same terminal and the same experience. We're doing the same in digital. And so we're going to have one button, unified button, one way to pay for every credit card network in the, in the world so that they, consumers know everywhere they go, this is a simple way to pay. And by doing that, a consumer can go through, make a payment with this one button um, without having to enter in all of the card numbers. They'll be able to do it in a much more streamlined way so that it's easier and faster and, you know, on the mobile screen, typing in that card number isn't always really, uh, really useful. So we're hoping that button makes it better for people. What's, what's the future? What do you see, you know, five, ten years down the road? You know, I think the future will be that physical and digital will keep coming together. If you think about how everybody lives their life today, um, you know, things that used to only be physical, like, you know, paying for a taxi or hailing a car service um, are now very, very much digital. And I think the future will continue to go that way because people want to be able to buy things or services any way they want. I mean, likely they don't want to buy anything. No one likes to pay for anything, but they want to be able to get what they can. And so there will be so many different ways to make payments that are within the experience that people are already in, um, that there will be just countless ways to pay, but they will be tight with security and friction-free for consumers and every journey. Our consumers won't, won't take it. People won't be willing to do that. We're talking with Jess Turner over at MasterCard. She's the EVP of Digital Payments and Labs. I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Jess. Thank you. Thank you for having me. When we come back from the break, still more tech to talk here on Get Connected. You're listening to Get Connected, brought to you by London Drugs here on the Chorus Radio Network. Back after this. You're back with Get Connected. Don't forget to listen to our sister show every Sunday here on CKNW 980 in Vancouver. It's called The App Show. You've got a smartphone, smart TV, or a tablet. We'll tell you all the hottest and greatest apps to really make the most out of them. And again, it's called The App Show, Sundays, 10 to 11 a.m. Let's... uh, get our skill of the week. And we're talking about uh, the Amazon Echo skills that use the Alexa voice uh, assistant. Uh, what do we got, Graham? So this week I've got a great skill for you know anyone out there in the Vancouver area who likes to use the Evo car service. It's getting really, really nasty out there as far as weather goes. And, you know, having to walk from place to place or take public transit isn't always the best way to do things if you've got things to carry or more people to go with you. So I use the Evo service from BCAA. Have you seen this? Yes. Yeah. So it's all kind of over the... It's, I want to say it's all over the lower mainland. Burnaby is sort of this big black hole where you can't get an Evo car. But I book Evo cars here downtown over in New Westminster. So you can add this skill and you can then say ask Evo to book me a car. And what it will do is it will look in your near area, it will present you with a number of car options, and you can tell it which one you want to select. Love it. And so when you book one of these cars, you get a 30-minute window where you can go to the car and unlock it and drive it away. So you don't have to be there right that second. Uh, One of the things that I do, though, is, you know, I book these things, and I need to know how long is my reservation. So you can ask Evo, how long do I have left on my reservation? And if you get to a point where you don't need the car anymore, you can also say, ask Evo to cancel my reservation. This is a really handy little skill, and you can kind of do all of this stuff hands-free without having to go to your app on your phone. Something that I really like. So I've tied this in with my my Amazon Echo, and it actually works really well. That was our Amazon skill of the week for Evo car sharing service. That's all the time we have left for Get Connected. I want to thank Graham Williams for coming in and helping me out with the program. This is Mike and Graham logging off. We'll see you again next time.
You've been listening to a 980 CKNW podcast. Listen live at cknw.com, the Radio Player Canada app, TuneIn, Amazon Alexa, HD Radio at 101.1 FM HD2, and on the AM dial, 980 CKNW.